Father, as your people ate the bread of heaven in the wilderness and your son fed them with food, would you now nourish us with your word? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. (laughs) So in the 20th century, the longest and most significant theological work was probably written by a Swiss theologian named Karl Barth. It's called Church Dogmatics. Every now and then you'll go to a used bookstore and where they have books that you can buy for decoration, you will see rows of church dogmatics. Uh, it stands at 13 volumes, and it is unfinished. Uh, he started and published the first volume in 1932. He worked on it until his death in 1968. Um, it occurred to me what kind of change you would have seen in your world reflecting on theology from 1932 to almost 1970. Um, When he died, the work stood at six million words. We have some English professors here. I don't know how many pages that is. It's a lot. Um, And he was once asked, can you summarize 13 volumes, six million words? And he said that he could. His summary, very simply was Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Uh, This morning, we are going to look at, I think, some of the most important words that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Uh, Words of good news and comfort at the end of Romans chapter 8. They root us in the great love God has for us, and they root us in God's love, aware of all the things that challenge our faith in God's goodness and his mercy towards us. It's in light of suffering and sin, evil and death, that Paul proclaims the great love God has shown us in Christ and the great future he has uh, for those who love him. Uh, Bishop N.T. Wright, reflecting on this passage, says, Look around. See the many things which threaten you to separate you from the powerful love which reaches out through the cross and resurrection and learn that each one of those are beaten foes. Learn to sing and dance for joy, to celebrate the victory of God. Then he says this, the end of Romans 8 deserves to be written in letters of fire on the living tablets of our hearts. That's what we're looking at this morning. These words that should be written in letters of fire on each of our hearts. Because Paul doesn't doubt that we will have tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. What he asks is whether these things can or will separate us from God. Will the suffering in our lives cause us to turn away from God in frustration or turn towards him for help. Even in the midst of our questions and doubts, to turn to him for his strength, his peace, his grace, his consolation. I think that is one of the central questions of the Christian life. When we turn away from God in frustration 
or turn towards him for help. As we start Romans 8, uh, we can look at some of the challenges to God's love, things that cause us to doubt. Um, Earlier, actually in the spring, I talked about a survey that was released, and it listed the reasons that people either don't believe in God, don't claim to be Christians, or don't go to church. Uh, The number one uh, reasons on those surveys had to do with bad behavior. Bad behavior of Christian leaders, bad behavior of self-professed Christians combined with church hurt. Those are a major stumbling block to faith and something that's really, I think, just with social media, uh, we're much more aware of. These stories of pain and hardship when leaders have not lived up to their calling and done terrible things, uh, sometimes in the name of God. But right under those are a cluster of issues that have to do with believing, trusting, abiding in God's love as we look at evil and pain and death and suffering. Um, That's probably been the number one thing that God's people have struggled with for as long as uh, God has called to his people. Um, You can read reflections on this How do we believe and trust and abide and even hope in God's goodness uh, given the evil and suffering in this world, Uh, given our own ongoing sin and the struggles we see even within ourselves? Again, we all learned that great song as little kids. If you grew up in church, Jesus loves me. Uh, This I know for the Bible tells me so. But how does it hold up? to real life, and to real challenges. In the scriptures, we are told uh, two things over and over. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. But as we look around, I think those come under assault. We're tempted to wonder, and I've heard friends say, well, maybe God is good, but is he really all-powerful? given the things that go on in this world, the things that he doesn't say no to, the things that aren't stopped. Maybe God is good, but is he really all-powerful? Maybe a harder question is those who would say, okay, I can grant you that the Lord is all-powerful, but I don't know if he's good. And I don't know if I can trust him, given what's happened in my life and the life of those around us. Maybe he's omnipotent, but he's not good. How does the Apostle Paul answer these questions? The problem of suffering and evil. Well, here's what he says in Romans 35. He cries out to all challengers, who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He puts the problem in focus. Here's all these things that are hard and difficult and cause us to doubt. Can they separate us? Will they separate us from the love of God? Does it cause us to doubt his goodness, his his ability, his plan? Uh, And his answer, verse 36, here's how he answers the question with poetry. He goes, as it is written, For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him uh, who loved us. It's interesting. How does poetry answer this question? <laughs> um, if you were doing a math problem and you're supposed to show your work, how do you get from here to there? How do you get from that big question to that big answer running through Psalm 44? It's an interesting thing that the Apostle Paul does. And I would say that to understand his answer, and maybe to understand how even the Psalms are an answer to these problems, giving us voice to the doubts uh, that we have, but giving us a voice to praise the Lord in spite of them and in the midst of them, I think we have to realize that for many of us, we have been sold a bill of goods in the Christian life. Um, here's what I think it is, and I think it was well-intentioned, but many of us have been misled. Somewhere along the way, either explicitly or implicitly, uh, someone taught us that Jesus loves me, this I know, means no suffering will we know. Either implicitly or explicitly, we were taught that um, in the Christian life. And then we begin living our life following Jesus, and we say, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. This doesn't live up to the hype. And we're upset about it. Friends, as we read the Bible, the truth is, God doesn't shield us from suffering. He is with us in the midst of suffering. And he even uses it for our good in ways that we would never ask for and we usually only see in hindsight. And I would just say that our problem is not so much with that truth, that God is with us in suffering and uses suffering for our good. Our problem is that half-truth we were somehow taught along the way that we shouldn't expect suffering at all. Um, and frankly, I think if, if we read through the Old Testament, we read through the New Testament, I don't know how we screened that part of the story out uh, because it's all over the pages of Scripture. And so if someone promised you heavenly bliss today that nothing would ever go wrong, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, they have left you vulnerable and they have set you up for massive disappointment. And I'm not saying there's not a great good hope in the gospel. There is. Our promise is of an eternal future inheritance. It's based on the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Uh, but our, and our promise for today is that the Holy Spirit will come in our midst, the paraclete, the great helper, the great comforter to indwell and strengthen us through and in spite of suffering and even use it uh, for God's purposes in our lives. That's some of the mature teaching of Romans chapter 8. Because for the Apostle Paul, suffering is not our problem, but part of our job description. What we sign up for in following Jesus. And again, some of you are saying, hey, no one put that in the fine print. <laughs> I didn't see that on what I was signing up for. Um, I would just say that Paul knows this from his own life. Uh, Paul knows this from the history of God's people. And I think Paul knows this even more through his contemplation of the cross and the suffering of our Lord. Um, look at this list in Romans 8 of these things that might separate us. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. There's a part in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking about his ministry resume 
And he says uh, here, I have had far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rocks. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from those other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Think about it. The Apostle Paul can confidently tell the Romans that these things cannot and will not separate them from God's love because they didn't separate him from God's love. He's speaking fully from experience. That's where the quote here comes in. I mean, Paul has scars to illustrate his point, but he has Psalm 44. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. If you read the context of that Psalm, Psalm 44, it's one of the times in the Old Testament when Israel is actually following the Lord rightly, and they come under persecution and conflict with the nations around them for their very faithfulness. John Stott uh, puts it this way, they were not suffering because they had forgotten Yahweh or turned to a foreign god. They, they did some of that too. He said here instead they were suffering for the Lord's sake because of their very loyalty to him. It's part of the job description. There, there's an interesting story in the Old Testament. Uh, some of you may know it's called it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know, it's, little, it's like a Sunday school story. Somehow, it's kind of a horrifying story. I don't know why we teach it to kids. <laughs> but it's in the book of Daniel. And uh, we actually sometimes will sing a song called uh, Song of the Three Young Men. It's rooted in the testimony of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, here's what was going on. Uh, the people had been taken off into exile. They're in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler, he puts up a statue. And it says, at certain times, on certain days, everyone has to bow down and pray to me. Um, and you can imagine it's really to set a trap for those who are faithful to the Lord. And so when the appointed time comes to bow down and worship and pray to Nebuchadnezzar, they refuse. Um, they, don't, like, they don't go protest Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> They're not, there's not a petition to get rid They just quietly are faaithful. And people point it out. And they're brought before the king. Um, and because they have refused to worship this king, uh, these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are thrown into a fiery furnace. Um, I always wonder that we don't have that lectionary reading in July or August in the summer. <laughs> Just feels right. Um, no, they're sorry. They're thrown in. Um, and what's shocking to Nebuchadnezzar is as they look, and they expect these men to be incinerated instantly, there's not just three men, but they see a fourth figure along with them. In the midst of the fire, in the midst of what seems difficult, we're told that they see one like a son of man. 
who is both with them and keeps them ultimately safe. Isaiah 43 puts it this way, Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Here's what I want to show you if you haven't seen it in a passage like that. The logic of the scripture is when, not if. When you go through the waters, when you're in the rivers, when you go through the fire. The promise is not to keep us out of the furnace, but God says he'll be with us there, mysteriously using it for our own good and God's glory. And there were times in the Old Testament that God preserved his people from persecution. There are times in the New Testament where those who are faithful actually give their life as martyrs. And guess what? Even then, okay, that's not the end of the story because they follow the risen Jesus. That's the teaching is that even if all the things of this world do their worst to you, even death cannot separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's something better in store. It's just future. If you look back a little bit at Romans 8, this entire chapter is incredible, but Romans 8, uh, verse 29. Um, this is one of those verses that I think we can, um, <laughs> we can get lost in a certain debate that we've had over the last few hundred years and miss some of the promise in this verse. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And right now, a lot of you have already run off into a different <laughs> space. Listen to what, and again, we're, we came through the English Reformation. That's all well and good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? To be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Um, so often we take that verse and we really kind of agonize over the initial call of salvation. Um, what's going on there when what Paul is telling us is that the ultimate goal of the Christian life is that you will be made like Jesus forever. That the Spirit is doing a work in you and he will carry that out to completion. You won't see the finished product before you die. But we're told here that God will glorify his servants and conform them to the image of his son. And sometimes he actually uses suffering for that conforming work to mold and to shape us, to be made like Jesus forever. The one who suffered, died, and was raised to new and glorious life. We shouldn't be surprised when tough things come our way. In fact, we should be surprised if our faith doesn't provoke <laughs> Hardship, suffering. Uh, Paul, in the book of Philippians, wrote to that church, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. His prayers that they would know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that they may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we would obtain the resurrection of the dead. That's a different posture. That we would say, Lord, would you use anything and everything to make me like Jesus? And receive and even acknowledge that the hardest things that 
come upon us could be part of that process. Paul seems to be saying that since Christ proved his love for us by his sufferings, then our own sufferings couldn't possibly separate us from the love of God. John Stott again says that the trouble we have should be seen as evidence of union with the crucified one, not a cause for doubting his love. Friends, suffering and evil are not evidence that God does not love us. Instead, these are the arenas, the place where we find that God is with us, where we see the tenacity of God's love, a love that will not let us go. There is a tenacity to God's love that holds us fast in the midst of and in spite of all the challenges to it and the suffering of this world. That's what I want to finish it, looking at the tenacity of God's love. Verses 38 and 39, because the good news of the gospel in Christ is not that sin and suffering and evil are gone, but that they have been defeated. They've been defeated. That's what Romans 1 through 8 is all about. Look at these verses. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These things have been defeated. Paul's answer is not that we'll be free from them or avoid them, but that these things have been conquered and we will be more than conquerors by resting in the victory of Jesus. These things have been defeated, though their full execution hasn't taken place yet. There's that temporal tension we feel between what has happened now and what we expect in the future. Uh, we mentioned this a few weeks ago. Romans 8 tells us that creation itself is groaning with longing and anticipation for the day when God will make all things new fully and finally. We sometimes, in our, in our honesty, um, man, when pain and suffering come, I feel like a toddler on a long road trip. Um, I say that because Father Bill just drove back from Minnesota with his children. <laughs> Are we there yet? <laughs> Is the journey done? We feel that. We feel that tension. When, oh Lord, will you act? And that tension is natural and fine. That's okay. Taking those questions to the Lord is different than what we heard in the psalm that they tested God in their hearts. We're supposed to be honest with our Heavenly Father. And as we lean into this, we see that tension and grief are natural and that the love of God is there. More ferocious, more tenacious, sweeter still than any of the sin, evil, suffering, and death around us. Uh, Michael Bird, who is an Anglican scholar in Australia, he looks kind of like Austin Powers. He's N.T. Wright's little sidekick. He writes here that Paul is not engaging in some kind of cognitive dissonance. This is important. He's not reconfiguring his belief to manufacture a metaphorical triumph in the ashes of misery. Far from it. He believes instead in the Easter message that God on the cross of Christ has dealt a decisive blow to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that one day those old foes will be made no more. See, as we wind through Romans 8, uh, the great beginning, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To the end here, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We journey 
And we are led. And we're led by the Spirit. And we have this passage in the middle of Romans 8. Sometimes we skip over it. It says, The Spirit gives witness to what our own spirit is saying, that we are God's children. And if we're children, we are also heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to this line. As long as we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. Once you're aware of this, you see it all over the scriptures. Um, and I don't know how we've screened it out, and I do think we've let a lot of people down and left a lot of people vulnerable by not teaching this fully and clearly. Sometimes I think with good intentions, but it's been uh, troublesome. Um, here in this passage, he's, he's letting them know that suffering is the inevitable path we must all tread, though he'll add in Romans 8 that even the greatest of suffering just pales in comparison relatively with the glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus. He's not saying it doesn't matter. He's not saying it's not real. He's saying what you have in store for you is so much better, so much more glorious than you can even hope or imagine. And somehow we will look back with the eyes of faith. We will look back in hindsight and go, oh, this is how the Lord has used this for his good and our glory. When we see the Spirit leading us in Romans 8, the other thing we're told, and I love this, sometimes we don't know what to pray. We're left without words. And Paul says the Spirit inside us will intercede with us uh, with groanings too deep for words. And I actually think that maybe that's one of the answers. How do Christians reckon with pain and suffering? Well, we acknowledge it. We see it. Sometimes it leaves us speechless and we pray, Lord, have mercy. We pray and ask the Holy Spirit to intercede uh, on our behalf. There's a vocation and calling for God's people to pray in the midst of pain and suffering, to be present at especially those places where the world is in pain and things are the hardest. Paul is not here proposing a Christian version of stoicism. He is offering a Jesus-shaped picture of a suffering, redeeming providence in which God's people are not simply spectators, not simply beneficiaries, but active participants through prayer and through service and being present to the world in the midst of pain and hardship. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Man, the answer to the, the Gordian knot of suffering and evil really is faith. An active trust in the goodness and wisdom of our Father. Uh, last week, we looked at King Solomon's request for wisdom. And he told the Lord, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. In another place, in Matthew, Jesus talked about becoming like children. Here's what I think. I don't think that means that we should have a baby faith or an immature faith. That we don't pretend things aren't as bad as they are. But I do think we're called to have a childlike faith. Not a childish faith. A childlike faith. And I see some of our kids, are, they're ready uh, to come in pretty soon. Um, what's a child know? A child knows that they can trust their parent. They depend on them. If things are, are scary and things don't make sense, they reach for their parent and they reach for comfort. Um, that's what I think it means to have a childlike faith. 
is that we know, man, when things are hard, we can reach to our parent. We have the wisdom of Solomon to go, we don't have the full picture. We don't have the final picture. And so even in light of all these things that are hard, we are going to trust in God's ultimate goodness, even when it is difficult. It takes a childlike faith, not a childish faith, to believe in the goodness of God, to trust in him in the midst of pain and suffering. It requires faith, ultimately, not in our own works or our own goodness, but in what God has done for us in Christ. For faith in what God will do in the future. Trusting that we are indeed more than conquerors through him who loved us. And finding ourselves reaching up for and being held by the love of God. Looking out at the pain and suffering at the end of the 19th century, um, the Russian novelist Dostoevsky, I love this guy. I want to read what he wrote and offer it as a closing prayer uh, for us today. Here, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. Like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.